Welcome to The Last American Vagabond. I'm excited about the conversation today. I've invited on Jay Cooey, PhD, to discuss a lot of different things surrounding the science and the conversations around the COVID-19 injections. Specifically, in my mind, as you guys have seen me talking about a lot lately, is the the lipid nanoparticle nanotechnology overlap in that conversation, the platform itself, and a lot of different things that he's been studying. A very intelligent person. I'm excited to have the conversation today and uh, see where it goes. So, uh, Jay, it's nice to see you, man. How are you? Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much for having me. I'm uh, I'm really excited. Um, I'm doing okay. Uh, we could all be worse. I just didn't think we'd, I, as I said earlier, I didn't think we'd be here in 2024, but here we are. Yeah, yeah, and indeed. And really, like, like as I asked before, like probed about what you meant by that. There's so many ways you could take that statement. I think we all collectively feel that in one way or another. Like, how are we actually here doing this, living through that? Like, it's, it's a crazy time. It really is. And I, I, I kind of think in a large way that it's by design. And I think, you know, there's a lot of, to that statement as well. But uh, yeah, thank you for joining me today. I really, I, I saw some work you had recently done and some conversations you were having about lipid nanoparticles. And I'm just like, I need to talk to this guy. I need to get this person on, you know, have, have, cause it's such an interesting conversation. I, I'm not a scientist or a doctor or a PhD, but I've been covering this from the, from the, really before COVID-19 conversation, but po- after this illusion began, I've been so, I've immersed myself in this conversation to learn as much as I can about, you know, the technology behind it, the lies that we've been told so far. And, and there's just, it's just one thing after another, the more you dive through this, it's incredible. And that's why I'm so glad people are asking a lot of questions and work like yours is important. So I'd, I'd actually like to start with, you know, before we get into one, one um, thing that I wanted to kind of go through that I saw you talking about this kind of a broad point about why people are kind of following along with the narrative and so on. Why don't you give us an introduction about who you are, your background, and and really, I guess, predominantly this conversation or, or focused on this, why you started doing this work in regard to, you know, COVID-19, the science around all this, the injections and so on. Well, that comes back to this thing about not believing that we would be here. So in 2020, I was trying very hard to become a successful academic. Um, I wanted to get my own R01 grant, and I hoped to be at the University of Pittsburgh for the rest of my career, I guess. Um, I wasn't the most successful neuroscientist in the universe in the sense of some people are able to get grant after grant and start off with, with lots of momentum and it never goes away. Other people have to go from university to university and start the tenure track a couple times. I started the tenure track once in the Netherlands and didn't get enough grant money basically to sustain myself. So then I moved to Pittsburgh and um, was lucky enough to get a position in a research assistant professor position, which is really one where you can focus exclusively on the research. You usually get a, a student or two. And so you've got a lot of time to to get data and to write grants. And so it was a good place for me to be. Um, I had a really supporting um, guy and uh, I had started doing a YouTube channel to teach um, uh, neurobiology to students that I had at Carnegie Mellon and also just as a, as a way of using my bike commute in Pittsburgh. And I was really excited about where my career was going and how much support I had and how many friends I was making. And then this pandemic started and I did a couple bike rides where I I did a couple reviews about pandemic bio, not pandemic biology rather, but coronavirus biology. And uh, I started to attract attention, which did not make the faculty and the University of Pittsburgh's School of Medicine, I guess, administration very happy. And it struck me as more than just a little odd. Um, And at some point uh, I was actually asked not to come in anymore. And the university quietly paid out the last eight months of my salary and did not in any way necessarily disparage me, 
But in a university setting, if you want to move on from another job, you can't just have all of your research stop and have no recommendations from your previous university. And that's essentially where I was in uh, 2021. And so after having this kind of, I don't know, moment of, of realization when they said not to come in anymore, I had started just teaching biology on the internet. And uh, lucky for me, I had enough supporters to keep that going, but it wasn't wasn't necessarily the best thing from a career perspective. My wife wasn't necessarily kept very happy by the instability of it. Um, but at a certain moment, I got very lucky and I, I attracted the attention of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And for about a year, I helped him write the the Wuhan cover-up book, um, which came out in December last year. Um, and then right after that hap- uh, that little appointment was done, I worked for a CHD for about six months, uh, Children's Health Defense, which is the nonprofit that he was the chair of until or right before he started um, running for president. Um, and then we parted ways in January. Um, and now I'm back on the internet um, teaching again and and just trying to continue to, I guess, sort of reconcile what I'm pretty sure is basic foundational biology and immunology from before the pandemic with what um, is now on television and social media portrayed as gain-of-function research and um, investigational vaccines and all kinds of new therapeutics and promises of what's to come. Um, And these are all very distorted under this pandemic lens, and it's become um, kind of my life's obsession to try and and bring some humanity back to the fundamental biology that I guess I grew up in love with and the reason why I found myself as a biologist as an adult. But um, I hope that's a decent introduction. I mean, I didn't go yeah. through anything. There's a couple other funny things that are in there, but um, that that's where I find myself right now. And I find myself pushing back against uh, right now my main... Um, thing that I've been looking at, I guess, is, and what brought me to this from the very beginning is what you were kind of interested in, is that um, I got in trouble at the University of Pittsburgh for using the word transfection often. Hmm. One of the the, the first things that I got in arguments about was the idea that Bill Gates was on PBS News, and there were also cartoons in the New York Times about how these new vaccines were coming out. And I was trying to tell everybody that I knew at work that, you know, we transfect our mice and we've transfected monkeys to express proteins so that we can investigate their function. Um, but we would never transfect our children. We wouldn't transfect our, our, our healthy grandmas. Like what right. you see that this is not a vaccine and lots and lots of people gave me pushback. That was as simple as, well, they must have fixed it or they must not be using the same things we use, but they were ignoring the fundamental principles of biology that are being not necessarily violated, but but are being um, encroached on when you transfect protein in an animal. And we've known that, um, academic biology has known that for 20 years, because we have been transfecting animals to to perturb physiological systems to understand how they work. It's a really fundamental mm-hmm. tool that's been used on every academic biological bench for for more than a couple decades. And so the idea that we were suddenly going to start calling these investigational vaccines was absurd. Um, And since then is when everything for me kind of veered off course, because not only did the University of Pittsburgh and the more mainstream um, 
news sources not want you to talk about them as transfection, but also a lot of people on the other side um, aren't willing to talk about them as transfection. So that's, if you want to talk about lipid nanoparticles, that's where you should start. You should start with the idea that we have been using lipids and RNA to transfect on the lab bench for decades. And we have been using uh, electroporation and DNA. We have been using adenoviruses and DNA to transform on the bench for decades. And these two terms, transfection and transformation, were very common before mm -hmm. 2020. And then suddenly there was this decision to stop using those words to describe the use of DNA and RNA respectively to change the protein expression in a cell, in a culture, in an animal, or in a patient. It's always been the same word. Yeah, and so I definitely, that it's so many questions I want to jump into right now. The, the whole thing you laid out there is really interesting to me. I'd, I want to take one quick step back, but just to comment on that, you know, the idea that I, that was such a central part of this entire manipulation that people... Other probably good intentioned people, highly educated people made these choices to go, well, they must have a reason. There must be some explanation. And and that's how a lot of these doctors and nurses are trained to think, well, you know, they know better. They're the academic elites. And and yet, even if that's the truth, they could still be wrong. You know, it's very weird that people fell into that trap and it kind of was, it snowballed to where you had a lot of the industry so, and I'm speaking only to the people that might not know any better and the thought they were doing right. There are people that truly manipulated, but they fell into that trap where it just kind of snowballed into their trusting the science, which really was whatever the industry was saying. And, the, you know, it's it's fascinating. You lay that out. And the point about how crazy it is that you're in an, an academic setting, which is supposed to be about research. And you get, you know, except that one right there. You can't research this topic. So we're going to box you out. It just it speaks to the reality, I think, behind academia today and how it's very manipulated, which I mean, if you have thoughts on that, I'm sure it's good. I do. I think the the thing to point out there is that, that my colleagues weren't so much saying that what I was saying was right or wrong. It mm. was that I'm a neurobiologist. Therefore, it's not my place to say it. Interesting. So I've established myself with this expertise. And so for me to go out of my lane and then to speak up as if, you know, I can know was already stepping out of the system. That's not how this works. You're you're not allowed to do that. And that became very clear because that's also the excuse that people use for saying, well, they must know. It's not yeah. my expertise. Interesting. Um, and rather than, than demanding informed consent because you're an academic biologist and you know enough about biology to know that there better be a good explanation for this mechanism. Otherwise, I don't believe it. Hmm. Instead, they just completely abdicate that responsibility and i that's what i got in arguments about in the hallway in 2020 that nobody felt safe at some point apparently because all i did was yell at people but it, it, if you're telling me to read the new york times for my immunology in the hallways of a of a top 10 medical school i'm sorry you lose yeah, right there's a problem there for sure <laughs> you trust the science here's what new york times said interesting but let, let's take a quick step back because like and i want to go into all of that around around the the nano the lipid nanoparticle side of it the and i really want to get into like the, the your what foundational aspects of these narratives you're now questioning but i want to start with this clip that you just shared and I think this speaks to what we were just talking about and just kind of place this mindset. Cause I've been, I did a whole segment on this not too long ago, you know, about how interesting it is and how easy it is to manipulate like the, a, a, a society, right? People, a mass of people, because a lot of pe people were, were herd animals ultimately. And we follow along with cues and, and people in power manipulate that. So let's play this clip and then we can comment on it. And you just, right this on. is what, what you just recently shared. Oh, right on, on the left are actors 
Oh, yeah. They've been briefed to stand or sit when they hear this. It's crazy. Everyone else that's brought in is a genuine shortlisted applicant. They've been given no instructions other than to fill out their forms. My team and I were secretly watching from another room. The more socially compliant a person is, the more they're likely to look to others for signs of how to behave. This is going to be your spot. And the more people, the greater the pressure to join in. In this case, whether to stand or sit. Those people that didn't follow the crowd were removed. I think we have to lose Amy, sadly. Amy, come with me. Once we had a full house, we got rid of the actors. Leaving us with a room full of compliant people standing up and sitting down, even though nobody told them to do this. That's just, it's just wild. You it's know, very it's wild. Um, because a couple of things that people object to that because they say that it's not exactly the ash conformity experiment. And if you try it, it doesn't always work. But this is, this video, I think, was done in such a way that the people um that are being duped are really interested in whatever job or part or auditioning whatever they're auditioning for mm. and so there's an extra motivation that has been placed there beyond just a random experiment with your friends the other thing to see is that not to apply this to everything this this happened with masking for example um and it happened with uh lockdowns and 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 kind of the idea is more to think about what would happen if all of the people on television and all of the people that you saw, or say the majority of the people that you saw on social media agreed about anything, what would happen? Mm -hmm. That's what this video should illustrate. You don't want to take it too literally, but just understand that so many of us can be very, very easily influenced if there were just a few people that were working against us. Mm -hmm. The other really good example that I'm sure you've seen is this werewolf game where there's a couple people that can conspire. And if there are people conspiring against you, it is very difficult to figure it out simply because if they lie in coordination, mm -hmm. um, we have no way of finding the deception. And there is very, very good reason to believe that governments have been governing us this way for quite some time. Now, the only question is, um, to where, how far does this really extend? I think most people are willing to believe that it extends to marital affairs and, and this kind of thing, but they're not willing to believe that it extends to mythologies about the biosecurity state, but it might very well. I, I agree. And I, I actually think the first point you made is this makes it even more valid, right? In regard to the overlap to what we're talking about with COVID-19 is that people were pressured and you know your jobs are being threatened your families are being threatened so there's a thousand more reasons that they're more willing or want to comply so they don't have these bent these negative 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 aspects but what i just find so fascinating about it is is you know that that there are people that are so 
they're they're so insecure about where they're standing, you know, that they will simply like I think that first guy with the video can see he's he, he's acknowledging that it's strange, but instead of just going, which my mindset I'd first do, I'd be like, why are you doing that? Like I'd be like, why, why are you guys standing up and down? Let me understand it first. But instead, they just meekly kind of go along. Or the woman who just isn't even paying attention, and it shows you that she's not even concerned with what they have to do or say. And so this is different societal, you know. And I think that what we're seeing is that people in power understand that, and so. By, if there's two things that it's about trying to socially engineer people to care about what their neighbor thinks about them, but also to, you know, in, in kind of put this kind of stuff out in the world on a regular basis to try to coerce you, whether or not you are, you know, care about your neighbor's thoughts. But either way, I think that's such an important thought about how, what happens I think during COVID. The other, thing, the other thing that I can say that we should really add to that is that the in the real application of that to the world and how it's gov- how the world is governed you also need to have have people that don't stand up and complain but are actually also in on it mm-hmm. so that so that both of the groups that doubt the standing and and sitting from the bell and the those that conform have to both be in on it because mm-hmm. that's what we really have going on here with regard to the red and blue in America it's not two different perspectives on how to run America. It's two different perspectives on how not to do it. And they collaborate somehow to fracture us on that and, and get us to argue about those things. And so um, it is it is at the heart of this that there is this illusion that everybody agrees on that the worst case scenario is if they make another gain of function virus, it could be a billion people dead. And this worst case scenario is agreed upon in secret meetings. It's agreed upon in Congress. It's agreed upon in mass media. It's agreed upon in social media. And it's agreed upon by the left and the right, by the lab leakers and by the the natural zoonotic people. No one doubts the fact that worst case scenario is a gain of function virus that spreads around the world and kills billions. And that mythology is what they want us to teach our children. And that's there's no biology to support that. That's where I am right now. So let's actually start with that before we even get into the platform. I just wanted to okay. include as well. I'll include a, a great a great post from James Corbett from 2018. And it's really about the oh, TSA, yeah, there you go. But, but he goes into the Milgram experiment. And really mm-hmm. the powerful, what you need to understand about this, and you make sure you watch this and read it, but okay. realizing that if, you know, I'm speaking to the, the audience at large, but you as well, if you haven't seen it, but, but that overall, that basically if one person stands up and goes, why are we doing this? Why, why do you have a right to tell me what to do or sit down or stand up? What it does is it opens the mind of the other people to go, oh, I mean, I didn't even realize we were allowed to push back. You know, so it starts that momentum. And I think that's his whole point is that, you know, be the one that stands up. Show people there's another choice there. It's, it's you know, an interesting conversation. But to to that point you made. So gain of function, you're, you, you, you've pointed out more than once. I want to hear your, your thought about that in regard to why the point you just made, why that's not backed up by the biology or the, the virology. But on top of that, what other aspects of kind of the foundational points are you now feeling are or not backed up by data? Sure. Um, So I think the first and most important thing to point out, which I think you're already aware of, is that if you want to believe that there is a new cause of death on Earth cause uh, called SARS-CoV-2, there is really no evidence for it in the all cause mortality around the world. There are people who have looked at it and haven't really found a correlation with with spread. Um, There are localized events which last between three and four weeks and then they just stop and they don't spread cross borders or move um, across states or anything like that. 
Um, and that's most important for people to realize because early on in the pandemic, we weren't given the information that we should have had because deaths weren't recorded on the right day or weren't reported correctly or COVID and non-COVID deaths were all twisted around and we were being confused by PCR and no PCR. Do we have tests or not? Are these designated? It was all done on purpose to create right. this illusion that the worst case scenario might actually happen and we just don't know. And so that that uncertainty was extended for as long as possible. And so if if anything, one of the main operations that they they are doing now is to try and get us to forget all about 2020 when all of this was really happening. And we were being fooled. And I mean this very sincerely. We were being fooled into believing that what happened between Rand Paul and Tony Fauci, for example, was real. Right. But that was actually a theater to get us all thinking, wow, there's a cover up happening. I think this is a mystery that I need to solve. And it might be a natural virus, but it might be a lab leak. And I actually was motivated more by that than I was by my understanding of natural immunity in the very, very beginning, because that that uh, that possibility was put in front of me very early and I bit it. And so for a long time, not only was I telling everybody, no, natural immunity is more important and it's not a novel virus because we've seen coronavirus before, but it is a lab leak. And so I was saying it. And, and so in a lot of ways for anybody that, that thought lab leak was crazy in 2020, then I was doubly nuts, right? I was, I was, I was even more nuts. And so from the faculty's perspective in 2020, I was a guy who was saying it was a lab leak when it wasn't okay to say it was a lab leak. And that also um, is something that took me a long time to realize. And here's where I realized it, my friend. Um, working with uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. on his book, at some point he asked me flat out in an email, you've got to explain to me what infectious clones are. And I I had thought about it. I'd read about them, but I'd never, I'd never bothered to try and teach them to anybody. And so he asked me to do it. So I had to really dig in. And the very short story is, Ryan, is that infectious clones are the way that RNA virology is done. Essentially, up until the use of infectious clones, RNA virology was done with shadows and hints of RNA sequences that they could find evidence of and very occasionally might replicate for a short period of time in a cell culture, but were almost intractable and had to be described with indirect means like smears on a gel or or, or cytopathic effects, because not much else could be done with them. Their, their existence could only be inferred. Um, and then in the late 80s, it became possible to make a DNA clones of this RNA and then use a, an RNA polymerase to just read the DNA into RNA. And they found out that that RNA would essentially uh, reproduce a lot of the basic experiments that they were only able to do sometimes when they got lucky with RNA viruses in the past. It could cause cytopathic effects and it could show the presence of this RNA in a culture. It could make an animal have an immune response that included antibodies. And so with the use of, of reverse genetics and infectious clones, they are able to make RNAs that they can't otherwise recover from nature. And they can't otherwise create infectious material from nature except in this synthetic means. Now, the reason why this is important is because up until the pandemic, the potential for a coronavirus to do what they've now told us this one has done, which is starting from a point somewhere in China 
It has gone from being, let's give them a big number, a few billion molecules in a puddle to being countless molecules in every state and local district in the world. Most lungs in the world supposedly have seen this novel virus, which started out in Wuhan and went from that point around the world several times over the last four and a half years. And that is, there is no biology to support that. The best story they have is from 2002, where 8,000 people were infected and 700 died. And they were able to sequence it, say, I don't know, 50 times. Now they're telling us that they were able to sequence this one over 15 million times, and they're still tracking it with high fidelity as it moves through its evolutionary path into the future. And this is absurd. Mm -hmm. There's no precedence for this. Well, so what I think is interesting first is the idea of, well, I, I want to probe more on what you think is the actual reality, but in regard to the clones themselves. So if I'm understanding this correctly, what you're saying, this, this speaks to the, the idea about isolation as well, right? So what you're essentially, they're, the only thing they can do is make an, a, a rep, like a clone that then is, act, they then use to argue this is what it's, it's a causing, but it's not actually provable from its origin. Is that what, is that understanding that correctly? Yes, absolutely. So even, even in this, in the sense of the original experiment, um, that lots of people before me uh, were able to see was was something was wrong with it, where they isolated the virus or they found the virus in in Wuhan. To to say that you're finding a single sequence is already disingenuous. You have to call it a consensus sequence, and virology themselves admits that the consensus sequence may not actually exist as a molecule, but is a some kind of signal average of whatever RNA signal they purport to be in there. But even worse, it is a signal um, that they are sort of forcing into the form of a coronavirus by the very by the very primers that they use or by the very databases that they search through. I can kind of give you a, an analogy if you want. Mm -hmm. If you if you took a whole library and uh, without fire, but just with physical means, blew it up into a million pieces and then uh, went in there and searched for words to assemble into a book about yoga, you, you, could, you could convince somebody that there was a book about yoga in that library with there having only been books about ancient Christianity in that library. That's and it wouldn't be very difficult. And so without much precedence, we are taking the word of a very few people that this technology has the fidelity to find something new it was never there before, even though they have no evidence for what was there before. They just tell you nothing right. was there before. That's a fantastic analogy, by the way. And that actually speaks to even like the PCR concept, right? Where the idea is you could find whatever you're looking for because, you know, like the idea, like just picturing all the different letters that have been exploded from all these books and you could literally make whatever you want from that. That's a, I think that will help explain that a lot for people that have never heard this before, like how that can be done. And even in a way that some other people without realizing might take that at face value, not even knowing they're being manipulated, right? There's a whole different layer to that. That's, that's it's really, really yeah, and I, I want to make that very clear because it is important to understand that if you wanted to take that physically uh, disrupted library and prove that there was a yoga book there, there would be genuine ways to do it. Mm -hmm. And there would be tests that people could design. You could imagine, okay, if we find a cover that says guide to yoga, that's a good hint. If we find uh, a whole intact chapter that we can see uh, is is all illustrations of yogic positions, well, maybe that's a good sign. But if you wanted to be disingenuous, 
you could be easily disingenuous and say that, well, this, this assembly of sentences indicates, well, it says right here, you know, and this is a good indication. It's a yoga book. Um, now, imagine the other hand where it, it's even worse because imagine I want to say that Bobby's book was in that library. Well, that's pretty easy. I'll go like this. Anywhere where we find the sentence, uh, the CIA created the Office of Secret Intelligence, then that is an indication that this book was in the library. Now, there only has to be one book in that library that has those words, mm -hmm. and we could make the argument that this book was in the library when it wasn't, right? Right, right. And so that's also part of this, is that, that we have been strong-armed into taking the word of, of the biosecurity state around the globe that the fidelity of this story is true. And I, after three years or more of working on this as an armchair biologist, I just, I find myself um, uh, wanting to hand over to people like Stefan Lanka and, uh, and, and Raznik and these other people who were doubting the fidelity of, of RNA virology already in the 90s. Um, mm -hmm. And, and I was just lost in my own little niche of biology and just wasn't paying attention. Um, and I think a lot of us are very guilty of that. That's why all my kids are vaccinated and I didn't see the movie Vaxxed until 2022. Right. Because I was under a rock, you know. And had I seen that movie in 2016, I would... I probably wouldn't have made it as far as I did in academia because somehow yeah. or another, I wouldn't have conducted myself in that way. And so all of this has happened for whatever reason. And here we are. Um, but I do think that there is a way out um, because they've overextended themselves on this now. And uh, there's a chance, you know, but they've really gotten our kids, man. I don't know what to say. I really think that the, the scary part is, is we're teaching this to our children by right. they, they got us. One of the things that I talk about a lot of times with regard to, we went back to this uh, original video that you showed mm -hmm. with masks. Um, one of the things that that did too was it showed kids that their parents don't get it. So mm -hmm. almost it, it put kids and parents on the same footing of you have to surrender and you don't know, and there's no good explanation, but you just got to do it because everybody else is doing it. And so our kids either saw that or they heard their parents in the car saying this is stupid and we're going to do it and whatever. But, you know, I, I, I really, uh, wow. I, I, I really think we need to focus very, very, very tightly on the young, like the, the college age kids that we yeah. abandoned in 2020 um, and didn't fight for them. I mean, more parents, more parents should have probably told their kids to take the year off. Um, and, and more, and, and obviously the, the financial decision to do that is, is extraordinary, but, um, I, I, I didn't have as much, uh, gusto about that in 2020 as I should have. I, I knew it, I felt it, but also people were saying, if we open Richard Ebright, he tweeted in, 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 I believe it was like September of 2020, if we open universities, or maybe it's August, if we open universities, we're going to kill 250,000, which is just crazy. I mean, it is. It, well, 2020 was a time where, you know, I mean, even those of us that were historically skeptical of government narratives, you know, there was still a moment in there where everyone's like, well, who knows? You know, people didn't Earth understand. Case scenario, man. Yeah. That's why I say that's so important because that's right. what put us all on our back feet. Well, let's speak or to that. Or on our heels or whatever. 
yeah, yeah. But let, let's speak to that. So what you're saying is ultimately that the the original presentation is 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 false. And I think I think almost everybody, and I'll come to the Fauci cell article about that in, explicitly. Everyone sees that now, even though weirdly it's still sleep sleepwalking forward or not even sleep, rushing forward. But so what do you think, what's the reality then? So what, what do you believe is the reality behind that? What was actually happening? Like even to the point to whether, you know, is there actually a SARS-CoV-2, that kind of concept? So I want to be very careful here. I'm trying to develop this response because it is important and I, I haven't had the right response lately. And I think I'm, I'm going to try out one on you here. Um, I actually am adapting a response that is actually my good friend Michael Yeadon's response, hmm. which is that if we treat this as a crime scene, I don't think it's our responsibility to have an explanation. And oftentimes the way that people will argue with me is to try and get me to commit to a particular explanation. So let me just answer it in a different way. I think we should have um, uh, make sure that we consider a different set of possibilities. The first one is is the idea that whatever we are testing for existed before 2020. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, then simply turning on testing and depending on whether it's, it's, it's high fidelity or low fidelity testing. Remember in the United States, there were more than 250 different EUA products for testing for the presence of this virus. And all of them are gone now. The ones that are on the market are different ones, the ones that were introduced in 21 or 22. So the whole narrative is built on a foundation of measurement that is gone now. We don't have any way of verifying whether these products were working or not. And all of this is just taken for granted. So the imagine, for example, it, it's, not a, it's not a great analogy, but if we were unaware that anybody had automobiles in their garage. And then somebody suddenly told you that Toyotas were spreading everywhere and you could test for them by going in your garage and looking and see if you've got this. Um, there would be a spreading of Toyotas that would actually just be the measuring of Toyotas that are around. And then if they told you that it turned to Kias and now you can test by looking for Kias, now the spread is looking like evolution, but still it's just the same cars that were there all the time. And virology, yeah, virology actually occupies this space where none of us can verify. So we are always taking their word for it with, with their tools to uh, believe their mythology. And I'm, I'm afraid that the, the trick is, and here's as an academic biologist, I'm speaking to other academic biologists through you now. I think that it's important for us to understand, just like with the, the analogy of the broken up library, mm -hmm. there would be a legitimate way to look and see if there were yoga books in the library and find out and, and come to an answer, yes or no, or, or probably yes. But with PCR in academia, when we do PCR, we do positive controls in triplet, we do negative controls in triplet, and then our actual target is amplified by PCR with nested primers that we design to be as specific as possible. And PCR tests for coronavirus are done to be as wide ranging and mm -hmm. aspecific as possible by focusing on the genes that they most often find and the parts that are most conserved among them. And so this already, from the perspective of an academic biologist, they think, oh, they're using PCR, so it must work because when I use it, it's a, it's a samurai sword and it, and it cuts right to the truth. But actuality, the application of PCR depends on the application of it. And, and, academic biologists, again, because it's not their field or because it's a different field, they're not willing to stick their neck out and say, well, you know, PCR can be misused. 
Yes. And, and, and oh, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. No, I was just going to add uh, the point about the cycle threshold, which my audience is well aware of, and how that was abused on both sides of this to make it look – and very deliberately. You know, I think it was 35 to 40 on the, on the original testing, and then went down to 28 if it was post-vaccination, which manipulated it. There was even a point at which I think it might have been – I forget which variant they claimed this was, but there was a point when they argued – the testing was like the gene dropout was suddenly the indicative of how this is the new variant. And all that really applied was, and by that was something tested before that was being seen as a negative. So essentially ended up calling negative a new variant, you know, and it's like, there's so many very variations to how this was manipulated. But that's a wonderful, this is the may, maybe the, the best example that's really tractable to everybody is if, if you realize that Omicron after it was declared found in these eight people that were in South Africa and then went to Belgium or something like that, they sequenced it and they said it was found. Um, they started as a, as you said, they started allowing the previous PCR tests to be used right. still. And they said that if the spike gene doesn't show up, this can be called spike gene target failure. And it can be indicative of, of, Omicron. But what that essentially means is, is that from a certain date, what was negative became positive, which means that from a certain date, there was always that positivity, right? Those who were all Omicron was always there. But because we take their word for it, it looks like Omicron is a variant that evolved from the previous one, but it was always there if you if you just realized the logic that they pulled. Very fascinating, and that's the car analogy, right? The idea that it was already there, it wasn't, you know, it was, you know, whatever. Well, on that actually, at that point in general then, so are we arguing in that circumstance that the Omicron was a virus that was around, that was mild, essentially, and that it was only just pointed to? Or rather, no, than I, don't think, I, don't, I, don't, I think that's already trying again to explain too much, because all we need mm-hmm. to do is explain that a story was told about a virus um, using right. techniques that don't have that fidelity. And and I think, again, I don't want to say that I know for sure that this is a signal that was in the background, because there's lots of evidence from from fungal and bacterial work that that. If you, if you, I, I'm going to make a very general statement. If you had a certain amount of bacteria in your soil and it was a certain, you know, ecosystem of that bacteria and you wanted to change it, you wouldn't be able to just throw a little bacteria, a new bacterium in the corner and then expect that new bacterium to work its way into the, into the ecosystem. You'd need to put the new bacterium in several, maybe all year round until finally you, you charged it up enough for that to happen. And if you think of, Whatever this uh, combination of RNAs in the background is, if it's if it's rhinoviruses and, and noroviruses and coronaviruses and, and whatever other things um, might be there, if you wanted something to start at a point and then to to sort of take up space inside of this all the way around the earth, all through all these people and all these cultures and all these communities, um, it wouldn't be possible to do that from a single edition, even if you tell stories about who this one had a furin cleavage site or this one has GP120 inserts in it. Um, there is no biology to support the idea, even if you did have this spike protein with all these added, you know, little pieces to it. Those pieces can't change the fidelity of copying RNA. They can't change the spreadability of self-replicating RNA, no matter what cartoons you draw, 
there's no explanation for how an RNA could jump from immune system to immune system millions of times and not run into a dead end like any other ever did in a few thousand. Like the best case scenario, again, is SARS. And that one they tracked as best they could from a point, and then it went away. And now did it really go away or did it just go into the cloud that makes everybody sick every year and we stopped testing for it? Mm-hmm. And and again, this is just another one of these things where if you just accept their cartoon, then SARS disappeared and everything was clean until mares came around and then things got dirty again for a little while. And now we let this really bad one out and everything's still dirty. Right. I um, mean, it just it's a it's almost a comical cartoon. Yeah, in a very yeah, you know, in a macabre sort of way, definitely. Yeah, but yeah. I, right. I I think that what's interesting there, and I I really appreciate what you're like. I understand the 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 way that you're discussing this because I've you know right now anyone trying to kind of honestly engage with the conversation in, in all of it, but specifically even the overlap of you know virology and terrain theory and the, and the kind of that I are I my opinion I've said this from the beginning is that this is still something being fleshed out. I I don't feel I don't feel personally. That it want, it, I think there's still questions to be answered in all of these sides of these conversations. And so that gets a lot of negative attention from people who have, maybe they're right, who have decided that it's one or the other. And I think that it's very, a fair statement to say that, you know, ultimately to what you're kind of pointing out there is that to get to the crux of the crime, it's not even necessary to highlight that ultimately. And I think David Martin made a great point in that saying, you know, look, like, He's not even he doesn't even want to get into whether he thinks virus is real or not, or because what he's trying to say is the argument is we're trying to expose the narrative from within their narrative. Like you're showing they're arguing this is real. And here's how we can prove this isn't X, Y and Z. Like my point is simply to highlight that, you know, it's it's an important conversation. And it should be had, but it doesn't have to be the shoehorned into every conversation within what they're talking about. Cause we can prove that there's manipulations, whether or not that is believed or not. I hope that makes sense to people listening. I think it's important just to see how, you know, that conversation can be kind of a stop in the development of any new conversation because people get stuck on that one point. And yes, it should be discussed, but I, I so I understand where you're coming from there. And I think that's important. So let's, let's talk about the conversation of the platform itself. Like going into the not not the hypothetical COVID nineteen conversation, but the actual injection that was given, and and I argue, which is pretty much the crux of all of the problem, and and that that's whether you think this was never there to begin with or was and was benign. Either way you look at it, I personally believe the injection is you know the the only thing really hurting people at the end of the day. And so this this is a tweet that you shared, um, and I really was want to go off your statement, but there was a, a national citizens inquiry post simply saying could the presence of 40 trillion mrna molecules in each code vaccine be altering the body's recognition of its own organs and you know going on you know, talking about the uh, the fallout from what these are doing and you simply said oh but trump just rushed it or they chose to the wrong protein or it had impurities or it was lipid nanoparticles but transfection as medicine is obviously great the point you're making is it's really not you know the individual pieces, which are, I argue, also individually dangerous, but that it's, it's actual that the makeup and the platform and the process. So can, is that what I'm getting from your statement? There? Yes, yes, it's definitely what I'm trying to argue. And I think um, the 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 sort of debate is going to be again to try and suggest that because of rushing it or because of mistakes that were made or because the Department of Defense doesn't know what they're doing or because Pfizer lied or whatever it is, um, they didn't they changed processes or whatever that this ended up hurting a lot of people. And what that does is that it it 
overlooks the fact that transfection in its best form, in its finest form, was still inappropriate for healthy humans. And we knew that already for a long time. Um, I think one of the, the things that might line this up, you're probably already aware of this, um, there's a boy by the name of Jesse Gelsinger um, who was given uh, adenovirus gene therapy in, I believe, the late 90s. Um, and uh, he was missing an enzyme. Um, and so they thought, okay, we're going to use an adenovirus and we're going to replace the enzyme and then and then he'll be fine. And if without the enzyme, he needed to do a very special diet. It was very terrible. Um, and uh, so... What they did was they transfected his liver to the enzyme. They transfected that enzyme into his liver um, that was missing. Now, what we, what basic biologists would know, but maybe they didn't understand, is that if that protein wasn't present in in Jesse's body during development, then the T cells were not selected against it, and so he would have potentially T cells which are aimed at epitopes that are found in that enzyme, potentially, because that enzyme wasn't screened out as a self-enzyme during the T-cell selection when he was growing up. That's a hard thing to explain if you don't get it now, but the point is that you develop, your T-cells are selected not to recognize you on purpose, and that process goes throughout life, but it's especially during your young ages. So if that gene's not present, that means that what you have T cells that could potentially recognize it. They transfected him, and three weeks later, his his autoimmunity to his liver collapsed his liver, and he died. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was adenovirus. That was an adenovirus transformation. Now, they roll out adenovirus in the form of J&J and AstraZeneca, and then in a few months, they pulled it under the pretense that, well, hey, we're being really careful, but RNA is much better. RNA in a lipid nanoparticle does basically the same thing. It's it's transfecting cells in your body to express this foreign foreign protein. And the the best case scenario there is that your body is challenged in every tissue that expresses the protein to clean up the protein without making the wrong immune response to itself. The reason why this is dangerous is because the transfection is not going to stay in your muscle. We know that actually from the lipid nanoparticles actual designer. His name is Peter Cullis. Um, he is a molecular biologist and chemist from Canada. Um, Robert Malone himself actually argued that Peter should have shared in the Nobel Prize because of his seminal role in the development of the lipid nanoparticle technology over the last couple decades. And in a lecture in 2022, when he is um, answering a question from the audience, he just admits that he destroyed the uh, lives of five postdocs um, as they tried to target lipid nanoparticles to a particular organ or organs, and none of them were able to do it. And the fifth one demanded that she be put on another project or she was going to quit. And then he laughed that it might be 40 more years before we can target these things to a particular place in the body. So that that was a bald-faced lie that anybody would say and continues to say that the vast majority of them stay in your arm or that they don't go anywhere else. They go everywhere. Right, and we've right. known this from from very early on. That's the advantage of lipid nanoparticles. And in fact, they were originally marketed in the 90s as as liver targeting because that's where a lot of them end up. But that's just by happenstance. It's like if you said that, uh, I don't know. Uh, well, anyway, it doesn't matter. I don't need an analogy for that. It was really it's really disingenuous that they have portrayed this as something that they they understand how it works. They knew exactly how it didn't work. Mm-hmm. And they told us otherwise. 
Yeah, and, and the Pfizer's own documentation from the trial showed that the lipid nanoparticle concentrations went, like he pointed out, all over the body. And yet still somehow tried to argue for, and still to this day, some people still try to argue that it somehow stayed in your shoulder muscle, which is completely yeah. ridiculous. But that, 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 you know, and remember for those that are listening that the lipid nanoparticles, you know, carry the instructions in regard to mRNA to create the spike protein. So by, you know, logically you could argue as well that the spike protein would end up at, but we know that by, I think the Salk Institute and other studies showed that there was spike protein throughout the body. But yeah, so, so ultimately... The, you know, the, the lipid nanoparticles, what you asked about before, I want, I'm just in case if I forget it, I want to say mm-hmm. this now. Um, the lipid nanoparticles, an especially nasty thing because it is without a doubt, um, it, it has to be responsible for something. I just, I can't, for me as an armchair biologist, it's hard for me to quantify what percentage or what, you know, what, what fraction of, of the damage would be done by the lipid nanoparticle. But just understanding that number one, the lipid nanoparticles are, are prepared in such a way so that they have the chemical appearance of being inert. Um, imagine, for example, uh, a shotgun, that if there's no shell in it and the, the chamber is broken, then it's a pretty, you know, it's a relatively, you know, you could give it to your daughter, she could carry it around over her shoulder, it'd be fine. But the moment you put a shell in and close it, now you have some problem here. This is a live thing. And the the... The lipid nanoparticles are basically like this. The cationic lipids that are present in there are, are basically treated in such a way so that they're, the, the extreme positive charge is neutralized in a, in a temporary fashion. And so that once they enter your cells and they are processed in an endosome and reach a different pH, they resort, they revert back to their original shape, which is an extremely cationic lipid which instead of being like this that can go into a ball they spread out like this and once they do that they release the rna and then we're supposed to just think okay well they're just lipids so they go away but they are lipids with an extreme they're 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 so ionic that they can tear uh electrons away from other molecules and essentially create lots of reactive oxygen species um and damage mitochondria and damage cellular machinery in ways that we can't really fully understand because these things have never been applied in humans before. We don't know what they do, but we do know that they, they are, they are, I don't like the word lying, but I don't know another word in the English language for what it is when you say something that isn't true. They are telling us that chemically they are inert and they are bringing the RNA to us. But what they're not telling us is, is that after the RNA is delivered, they go from being chemically inert to being extremely cationic and dangerous. It's just so frustrating. You know, so many, you know, this is the kind of stuff that would be, I mean, within the first year would have been fleshed out if there was an honest investigation and research on this, but we're this far forward, as you said in the beginning, how are we here? You know, where this is, it's just mind blowing to me, but really quickly back to the first point about the adenovirus, you know, the, uh, the, but there's why we're here because even people like Peter Cullis believed that the worst case scenario was avoided partly because we decided to use lipid nanoparticles and transfect people. They actually still have in their general equation that there was a worst case scenario and we avoided it because of lockdowns, masks, and we 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 transfected a billion people. They believe this. Yeah, and and each everything you stated there, as far as I'm concerned, well, I don't think, in my opinion, I think it's provable is scientifically proven to not be the case. I mean, I think there's peer reviewed science all over the place that shows every one of those things have been detrimental. 
But so the point about the J&J vaccine is, so are you discussing right there about antibody dependent enhancement, pathogenic priming, the, that kind of concept where the self-attack or was it something different? Scientifically, um, like, so I understand. So that. I, I'm, I'm still stuck where, uh, at the very basics where Sukrit Bhakti was, mm -hmm. which is that a foreign protein is expressed on the outside of a cell. And the first time that happens, the best case scenario is the, the, the immune system will come along. It will lyse that cell, destroy that cell and take it apart and present that protein to the immune system. And you will make antibodies to that protein. That's the yeah. and T cell memory to that protein. But the next time, you get transfected and that protein is expressed, there will be antibodies that stick to it. And when antibodies stick to it, then you can get complement, then you can get uh, neutrophils, then you can get the A-specific response that can cause massive damage and also um, not necessarily more likely to to cause autoimmunity, but it won't matter at that point because the it's the it's the antibodies and the cellular memory to the spike protein that's bringing in the uh, it's not even the innate immune system it's the complement system that will do it and the complement system is just a series of it's a set of molecules that is involved in clotting but it's also involved in attacking bacteria and viruses anything that's in your body that's not supposed to be there because they are like uh, little time bombs that self-assemble so they are proteins that float around in your blood and they they dock with membranes. And if they dock with membranes and don't meet proteins that neutralize them, then they can self-assemble and destroy whatever they're attached to. So one of the, the, the biggest dangers of for any virus that's in circulation is the complement system because they don't have the necessary proteins to neutralize it. So if a complement molecule starts to build on a virus, it will very soon be degraded. Um, the complement system is also really important for bacteria um, because, again, it it it, it essentially penet makes penetrant holes in bacteria and causes them to lyse um, just because the bacteria don't have the necessary proteins. And some of the most dangerous bacteria in nature actually do have proteins which mimic right. the neutralizing of, of complements. So that's an interesting point in general. I always point out in regard to that larger conversation is, you know, if there are proteins that, you know, like my point being is that there's bacteria that can spread and get sick and cause symptoms and there's proteins that, you know, it end up, it kind of ends up being a, you know, you call it what you want. You know, it really doesn't people dismiss things under a certain name, but you can see it applying in, in all these categories. But so, yeah, so that's, I mean, I think that that's so interesting to see how it's, you know, I just don't see how that's happening at by accident. Right. And I think this, this goes into the point about uh, Fauci's recent article. And I want to get into the point you just said there about self-assembling in regard to both natural and I think in ways that are not natural or organic. But he wrote an article about this, and I just want to make this because we're talking about the platform itself at this point, right? And and he wrote in his article, well, entitled Rethinking Next Generation Vaccines for Coronavirus, is posted on uh, cell.com uh, 2022. Here's what he said at the end for people that don't know this, despite the fact that this entire thing is still moving forward. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've seen this durably protective vaccines against non-systemic mucosal respiratory viruses with high mortality rates have thus far eluded vaccine development efforts. Challenges to developing next generation respiratory vaccines are many and complex. We must better understand why multiple sequential mucosal infections with the same circulating respiratory viruses spread over out over decades of life fail to elicit natural protective immunity, especially with viruses that lack significant antigenic drift. 
if we also if we are to rationally develop vaccines that prevent them. And it says past unsuccessful attempts to elicit solid protection against mucosal respiratory viruses and to control the deadly outbreaks and pandemics they cause have been a scientific and public health failure that must be urgently addressed. And I'm glad you brought up Dr. Bhakti because I'll play a clip from him at the very end of the show today. He is one of the few who spoke up right in the beginning. And it's like right in the beginning and said, these will fail. They'll stay in your arm. You coastal immunity brought up all this stuff. And it's just, and he's spot on. And even Fauci can write an article book basically explaining why this didn't work. And as far as I can tell, and you tell me if I'm wrong, they're moving forward with the exact same dynamic with no variations other than different changes. Like we'll get into like the different modified RNA concepts, but it's the same platform as far as I can tell. So I just find that crazy. Am I, you know, tell me what I'm, if I'm misreading that. Oh, you're not misreading that at all, actually. Um, it's, uh, it has been part of a long kind of existing transition that they knew was going to come. Um, I think it goes back to something that a lot of people say in, in, you know, kind of passing that mice, what is it? Mice lie, monkeys deceive. And the only true, uh, only thing you learn the truth from is humans. Um, at some moment, we are not going to make any progress with this uh, sort of pushing the uh, our understanding of our own biology. And for the last 20 years since the since the Human Genome Project, um, there's been a concerted effort for them to convince us that that we are on the cusp of being able to rewrite our de- genetic code and that we have so much just, it's just over the horizon or it's just over the next hill um, that all of these big, big problems are going to be solved. And one of the main uh, issues that was standing in the way of this was the simply collecting enough data, having enough genomes, having enough medical data um, and to be able to freely analyze it. And so the early Human Genome Project pioneers um, learned this very, very quickly, um, that they would have no chance of cracking anything without having every genome that they could possibly get their hands on to compare to one another, because that's all they can really do. And that's all they've ever really been able to do is use machine learning and massive amounts of data to try and find patterns that otherwise are inaccessible to our own analysis. And this, these patterns don't lead to understanding. They're just patterns that can be misrepresented as understanding. And um, that 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 is an issue for all of 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 biology right now, at least in the in the public health space, that we are being misled. You know the the statins idea. How much how much consensus over there over them was there for twenty years, and how was that generated? Right. Um, and there was barely any money behind that, and there was no global governance initiative behind that. There was no, um, and what's behind this is much bigger. Yeah. Yeah. And for those that don't know, the statin point is just that these were roundly praised and, and used. And, it, you know, the, the science even at the time showed that they weren't even successful in the way they framed it as, but it still was used. And it kind of speaks to the original point we made is that uh, people just follow along. Some know that another, another very good story that a lot of people aren't are aware of is I believe he was a Greek doctor, but a doctor in Greece. I'm just going to tell the story and I apologize mm-hmm. to him. He's gone now. Figured out that ulcers were bacterial. And it took nearly 10 years for them to stop cutting ulcers out of people's stomachs instead of just giving antibiotics that could handle the acid of the of the stomach and get rid of them. And that is, that's pretty extraordinary if you yeah. think about it, that, that it took 10 years for ulcers that were bacterial to be to stop cutting it out like that. That's extraordinary. Um, it is. It is. And it's it, just- it, 
But, but if we if we see infectious disease as something that could be possibly like the, this ulcer story, mm. that we have been misled about the prevalence of and the impending doom thereof, um, never mind the potential that can be generated in laboratories, then you can see how um, this is much better than terrorism for scaring people into governance. This is much yes. more universal and it's much more amorphous. Um, and uh, it makes a lot more products possible. Um, we need IDs, we need tests. Um, it all it all dovetails very well into a lot of the other things that I know you're well aware of that are on their list of wants. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, since you say that, I'll, I just grabbed this article real quick. Derek Bros, writer for T Lab, wrote an excellent article about this, and I think it was 2020. And I don't know if you're familiar with parasite stress theory, but it was discussed in multiple studies. I'll, 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 this link will be included with the show notes. Right on. And r- really what it basically goes over, and there's, these are government-led studies, that they their, their overall finding was that if they, they don't, the best thing that will drive people to essentially accept authoritarianism and con- top-down control over their lives, removal of their rights, all these things were discussed, is a, the threat of a, par- of a pathogen bacteria, virus, whatever. And the point being, they make it explicit. It doesn't even need to be real. The threat alone will drive people to tell on their neighbors, to give up their rights. I mean, they've studied this more than once. And so the re- we have to realize that there's a reason they're thinking like this, you know? And I think that's a, you know what the point you just laid out is, is very important in that regard. So, so bringing this to the, do you have a comment on that? Do you want to say anything? No, no, I'm just, okay. um, I'm really happy. I'm really excited. This is a really great conversation. I agree, man. I agree. I'm really glad to have you on. And I, I think this is this is now the point where I'm, I was my audience knows I've been really harping on this and I'm really, you know, and again, this is this this is limited knowledge for me. I'm not a scientist. I'm a doctor. You know, these are things that I'm learning on the fly since the beginning of this. And I see a lot of things connecting that I hope you can connect even further. So lipid nanoparticle modified gene COVID injection as a nuclear bomb was the way I titled this in 2022. And this is about just, again, kind of a point about the platform. But the part about the using the lipid nanoparticle gene delivery kind of system, which is essentially the same point. But I, I want to get into the this is the I'll just include this show where I talk about the self-assembling lipid nanoparticle point. Now, the reason this came up for me is because of something Bill Gates recently said. I'll play this clip for you and you can tell me whether this is valid, if there's truth to this. It, mm-hmm. so the point is that self-assembling nanoparticles are very real or self-assembly, which you recently mentioned, very real concepts. My worry, my question is about whether or not it is something that could already be in use and what that might mean. So here's what Bill Gates had to say recently. Mm-hmm. mRNA is really easy and really cheap. And that's the magic of this thing. But there's no doubt in the next five years, we can... You know, we just need to mess around. There's a lot of lipid nanoparticles, and some are very self-assembling. There's no inherent reason it's not thermostable, it's not cheap, and it's not scalable. And so, now, so the rest of it, he goes on to basically talk about, you know, why it's useful and so on. But the main point for me is, first of all, we just got to mess around. Like, that's lovely, right? <laughs> that's ridiculous to me. But then he mentioned self-assembling lipid nanoparticles specifically. So what are your thoughts on that? Um, I'm my gut feeling. Now, remember, I'm not a chemist. So um, a lot of this is my gut feeling from my reading. My gut feeling is he's actually using the wrong words there. Um, Lipid nanoparticles are often assembled with the RNA using microfluidics that get certain kinds of of fluid flow to occur. It's often a spin um, that's required in order to assemble them into the the right size droplets. But then they do do it spontaneously when you create the right the right conditions or you create the right flow patterns. Um, Now, 
Whether this is really self-assembly or not, I think when he's talking about messing around, what he's talking about is the billions of dollars of IP that are involved in designing those microfluidics and producing them and then patenting those ideas um, and selling them around. This is all just exploded in the last three years that didn't exist at all before because all of these previous platforms were basically biologics where you make a, a protein in a big bioreactor and then you purify it and that's that's your that's your small molecule or that's your therapeutic, that's your monoclonal antibody. Now, when we're making nucleic acids, the whole concept of, of what a pure product is, is redefined because with this one, you couldn't have, you could have zero. When you're making a monoclonal antibody in a bioreactor and you're trying to pass inspection, you can have zero, none, zero DNA or RNA present. If it doesn't have as any, it's gone. They have to burn the whole batch. And that's why monoclonal antibodies are so expensive. They have to use anion, anion exchange chromatography in order to prove that there's no DNA. Either they use it to prove there's no DNA or RNA, or they use it to remove it and then to prove that there's no RNA or DNA from the original bioprocess in the, in the antibody, because otherwise you can't inject it. Mm-hmm. So Previous biologics are required to have none. And now suddenly, because of the pandemic, we've decided to pivot to biologics that are based on it, like based on DNA and RNA. And this is this is a really much more extraordinary step than I think most people are aware of. Yeah. And then we get into the point where that's such an interesting point. So they go out of their way to make sure there's zero overlap there. But now we're not only basing the actual treatment on that, but then we're finding DNA contamination and extra proteins and all this stuff, which we can get into, which I I quite frankly think there's more to that. That's kind of where this leads in my mind. But so assuming that he would, so do you think he he was trying to say what what self-replicating? What do you think he might have? Yeah. So I think that's also part of it. I was going to get there too. And you, you reminded me, so I'm glad. Um, I also think it's part of it. I think most of Bill Gates' stuff is especially bad in this way in that he's trying to misdirect your attention to something else. The the real interesting thing is is self-amplifying RNA or mm-hmm. or RNA that 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 copies itself. And that's actually what they are preparing right now. The 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 self-assembly lipid nanoparticles are Peter Cullis, like that, that we already have. Um, and we've already had virus-like particles that self-assemble in the shape of even extended like the, like the Ebola virus. Those are originally patented by people like Sina Bavari from, from US Amrit. So, um, there's no question that there are various ways to package RNA and DNA synthetically that we're already very well aware of. And, and I think just the patents on virus-like particles by Sina Bavari, um, is already I mean, that's a huge red flag. Sina Bavari is somebody we never talk about. And Sina Bavari, actually with uh, a postdoc, a former postdoc of Ralph Barrick, Alison Totura, published a paper in 2019 that said there would be a coronavirus pandemic that would come out of China, that would come from a bat cave, and that would require an antiviral like remdesivir to be effective. Um, that's a pretty whopping set of, uh, yeah. of of predictions to make in August of 2019. That's, yeah, it, like I, near mathematically impossible. When you break down, like, just exactly. That's the point about like event 201 and the rest of them, where it's the yep. same point, where near exactly what ultimately is you know laid out is what ultimately happens. Yeah, well, so I think we get back to that though, just to round it off. The, the it is the self-replicating RNA. This is the newer platform, which is essentially a synthetic RNA virus, right? Because mm-hmm. if it, if it can replicate itself, um, 
the the idea of course is is that it's going to replicate itself inside of you so that they don't have to put as much of itself in there um but it still begs the question of how in the world is it possible that something as advanced as self-replicating transfection could be already rolled out in humans i mean right. how is it even possible you would you would need decades of work in animals under any other pretenses other than this this complete bamboozlement that somehow the pandemic has proven this whole platform to be safe well let me ask you this so you you, you you've said so clearly you, you feel that that's just not the case like that's the, that's the manipulation right do you think it's possible that that was it did happen but it was just an experiment and they didn't care how many people it hurt to see how they could progress by using it on the population in that way it like not works, likely i mean if there's i think if there's any water held by some of these stories about different batches it's most likely that um, again, I don't want to say I know, mm -hmm. but there are lots of other researchers who claim that there were hot batches and, and placebo batches visible in Denmark. And if you think about rolling out a new um, technology, one of the best ways to make it appear safe would be to roll out placebo batches. That would be cost you nothing. Right. It would hurt no one. And in fact, you would be giving a blessing to the people who weren't accidentally selected for the hot one. Um, this seems like... I, it's something that crossed my mind already back in, in 2020, that one of the easiest ways to do this would be to fool people with a lot of saline. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so this this is where my concern comes from. And to be very clear, and I've said every time I talk about this, it's it's a hypothetical conversation, and it's it's based on provable concepts. But my worry, to exactly what you highlighted right there, like how many times we've already proven that we've been lied to. Like I mean, like knowingly lied to about the process, about what's yes. in it, you know, so it's yes. it's not hard for people to wrap their minds around that we might be lied to in other ways, too. And so that's where I get into this concept. So Bill Gates saying that was just a way it kind of just brought me back into this about, you know, could these self-assembling nanoparticle technology could it already be utilized? in something that was given, you know, and I, the way that this was done in the world, I, I'm, I'm leaning more and more towards it was a massive experiment for multiple, a multifaceted experiment, in fact. And so I'll include these links I've already gone over for the, the 2021 self-assembled mRNA vaccines. And now in these concepts, again, kind of overlap with what you pointed out in, in like natural kind of concepts, but, you know, also gets into the idea of actual nanotechnology. And I think that's where I want to get your thoughts on. Like, so here's a quantum dot conversation that came out early, right? About the quantum dot self-assembling nanotech that would be used in regard to the actual vaccine, but also like the, to be able to track this, you know, the skin vaccination history, stuff like that. And so I guess just in a broad sense, first of all, do you think that it's, you know, something that is even tech scientifically possible that this could have been something utilized where we'd be able to notice that? Do you think that would stand out? It could like, to your point about how it changes, could this be something that's there that we don't know about? Hypothetical. Uh, hypothetically, of course, yes, it's possible, but I think, um, I think some of these, these more outlandish, I don't know if that's the right word, but, uh, mm -hmm. extreme versions of this kind of technology are probably still, uh, impossible. Now, the picture you just showed there encoding, uh, uh some information in nanodots on your skin, that's definitely possible. That's, that's just an invisible tattoo or, or, or an invisible barcode. I, I have no doubt that that's possible. Um, and making the manufacturing micro needles like that, that's also possible. I also think that if a vaccination is going to work, um, if vaccination does work, it works when you apply it at the barrier, wherever, uh, the immune system is, be it the lungs or the gut or the skin. And so even, 
from the perspective of arguing that, well, if we went back to vaccination to things in the skin, it might work better. I would be a biologist that would say probably because that's where the immune system is. But for me, these kinds of stories that, that are going around now are all to confuse us into uh, not considering what you've already said many times, which is just that this is one big sort of operation to get us to accept testing. Yeah. And, and we have more or less accepted that, you know, vaccines for old people can just be rolled out as they're made now. I mean, we don't we don't even need to worry about it. Um, RSV, pneumonia, yearly vaccinations are being pressured on old people. And this is not the, the biology of this is just not there. I mean, they, they have no evidence for this any more than they did that flu did it. Flu vaccine did anything for anyone. Right. Um, well, and, and the point about Fauci's article again, right? So the, you're you're claiming that the actual process here is not working properly, but now you're jumping to the point of like, we're, we're not even in eight mice territory anymore. They're like, we don't even need safety testing because we've already proven it with the model from before, which is, I mean, that's not even scientific. I don't even know how anybody is buying that argument. But so where I want to go with this is the conversation that I think, you know, kind of getting hypothetical, but mm-hmm. I find it interesting to think about the idea of hypothetical self-assembling nanotechnology concepts and the idea that just simply I, this is discussing the idea of DNA used to program self-assembly nanoparticles. And it's saying DNA is not just the stuff of our genetic code. It's also means to self to design self-assembling materials grafting dna to nano and microparticles can in principle program them with information that tells them exactly how to self-assemble so i just thought it was interesting this seemingly coinciding with and this is an old article 2016 the dna contamination that we're finding do you not do you think that would line up in an interesting way that might be you know if again hypothetically this was done that seems like a way that that might be giving the materials to be able to build something like that is that scientifically possible accurate yeah i I don't i don't feel that way so the the i think this paper that you're showing there 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 are also people that have worked with dna as a structural material Mm -hmm. um to try and make very stable information structures so if you could um, make buckyballs out of DNA that also encoded information. They would be a very stable chemical over 10,000 years, and that would be really cool. Um, so these things are very different than how DNA is thought to be used as genetic material in a cell. And I think we are still extremely far away from understanding how DNA is used as genetic material in a cell. They want you to believe that, you know, when I was a kid and you were a kid growing up, they used to tell us that there were introns and exons and the exons coded for proteins and the introns were just garbage um, left over from, from, you know, millions of years of evolution. And we haven't come that much farther in our understanding, except to accept that that wasn't good enough, that there's a lot of other stuff that's present. And so um, it's but now we know for sure right now we know, right. <laughs> Even though we just went, <laughs> now we know. Yeah. Now we can just send some mRNA in and, and, yeah. and augment the system. Yep, yeah, exactly. Well, I, I, the last couple of points I want to get into here, I think, is, is interesting, is the idea of the protein side of this. You know, and the, this is this is just a, a biomedical engineering society writes that proteins once only linked to diseases are now the heart of developing advanced nanotech devices and biosensors. And I think this is the world that really begins to terrify me, like where this is going, the overlap of like, the actually just jumped to right, right to this, the overlap of um, where was it right here? The things like this. You know, the, the, this, this is the stuff directly from the conversations of Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum, the converging technologies, the mm-hmm. bioconvergence they're talking about. This is a document for 2002 that literally outlines how they're going to alter evolution, their words with nanotechnology. 
and this overlap with the bio side of this, you know? And so again, I'm, I'm trying to be, understand this more to find out how this is possible, how it can work. I recently discussed this coming from the idea of, uh, I don't know if you looked into a uh, ferret nanoparticle vaccination and what they're doing with that. There's a, there's, there's an article um, in the guardian. I'll just pull it up real quick. Okay. That, that I think is really interesting. That gets into the idea of using ferritin nanoparticles mm-hmm. to actually control the movements and you know thoughts and feelings of mice. Can I regard. tell you a really crazy story about this? Please. Um, so I worked in Norway um, in Trondheim. And while I was there, I used optogenetics to mm-hmm. use light to control some of the neurons in my brain slices and tried to use that to decide whether they were connected to each other or not. And so I would stimulate with the light and the, those neurons would start to signal and I would record from other neurons to see if they were connected. Um, and in this way, I tried to prove that a particular circuit in a particular part of the brain was dominated by inhibition or turning each other off. And I had a nice paper on that. The guy who I collaborated with that made the adenovirus, which we used to transfect, or in this case, transform the neurons to express the algal protein, algae protein, that was sensitive to blue light and let in sodium channel sodium ions when you shine blue light on it. That's basically mm-hmm. what optogenetics is. You take a plant protein, an algae protein, and you transform or transfect cells, in this case, neurons in the brain, to express this protein, no different than expressing the spike protein, but it's now they're going to express this algal protein. And when it shine, shine blue light on the algal protein, sodium is able to go from the outside to the inside, And this causes a neuron to start signaling. And so when you turn on the blue light, the neurons that are expressing this protein start to spike. And so you can use this to, in a live animal, you can use this to manipulate the animal's behavior or to change it. Um, You can use it to to provoke fear when the animal shouldn't be afraid. You can uh, use it to provoke freezing when the animal shouldn't freeze. There's lots of ways that optogenetics have been used to, to hijack. The point is where we're going. Um, the guy that prepared this virus for me left the Moser lab after uh, the same year that I did and went back to China to start his own lab. Um, and he was involved in a controversy where he went to the lab where this magneto protein was first published wow. and took the protein back to his lab, cloned it expressed it in neurons and claimed to be using it to cause neurons to spike and tried to publish this ahead of the guy who was about to publish the magnetoprotein in nature. So it's funny because this story of using magneto to control neurons is was already debunked in my head when mm. this former colleague of mine went back to China and tried to steal the idea because his paper was fake. And the resolution of the the protein at the time, meaning the gating speed, how fast it opens and closes um, in response to magnet and magnetic fields is not high. Um, remember, this is a protein that is supposedly cloned out of birds that are using it to navigate. So it's supposed mm-hmm. to be kind of a uh, an indication of compass direction, but it's not really clear how this ion channel would be used to create. So in other words, the biology that this, 
this protein plays in the bird is still not well understood. So then to take it out and use it to control neurons was a really big, exciting thing for this guy to do. But it turned out that it wasn't as simple as taking the protein and expressing in neurons. So much so that he had to fake the paper and he got caught. And so, okay, so that this is actually, so you're, so what, just so I understand what you're arguing, are you saying that this entire direction it's probably, is it's probably not as, as scary as you think it is. It's probably it's possible that Goodness. they could try to have created such a protein and they could get an effect very similar to optogenetics, but with less temporal resolution. Optogenetics is really like millisecond, light on, light mm-hmm. on, light on, light. It can do all kinds of stuff. The trouble is you can't get blue light into the brain very easy. Um, and the other problem is when you express these proteins in neurons, eventually the immune system of the brain takes those neurons out. And that's, again, the reason why any academic biologist should have done known better, because when we use transfection, we have to sacrifice the animal early enough so that we can still see the anatomy of the circuit that we modified. Otherwise, the immune system will clear it out. And when we try to do the anatomy and look where we made the manipulation, there will be nothing left. This is it's just such a, it's so interesting to me. It's so it's such an interesting coincidence that you have direct connection to this. It's such it's so it is, actually. So, yeah. So, so here's what, here's what I would like to ask further. So, so it's really good news if you think this, cause this is a terrifying concept at the end of the day. And, but so what, to what level do you think this is manipulated? Because, because what we're talking about is stuff that's continued since then it goes all the way. The, so well, the I'm just, I'm guess I'm just implying that. Okay. I hope we, you're right. I, we can make, we can make proteins that respond to, to, to magnetism. And we can probably make proteins that will change conformation and allow the passing of ions in response to magnetism. Whether or not you can put those in places that will be useful in augmenting the brain's function, without a doubt, is bullshit. That's like saying that you can put buzzers on the chairs of random people in a in a symphony and then usefully augment the concert that they put on. That would be ridiculous. And mm-hmm. and this is no different than that. I mean, we use it now as a very blunt tool in in our research and looking how these systems function, but you can't use it as a as a tool to to manipulate the the healthy life of an animal. We've never even thought about using it for that. We only have ever thought about manipulating the malfunctioning cancerous body of a of a patient with mm-hmm. with transfection and that can work and it can give them five useful years it can put the put the the cancer into remission but you're not talking about augmenting a healthy human then you're talking about augmenting a really highly malfunctioning immune system and so that's a very different prospect than you know we know how to augment your chill your children because we they don't yeah. Well, so this, what's interesting is, so aside from the worry I had about this and, you know, because like my point would be that they're also working on, um, I think I've got the article pulled up here, like lipid, na- like right here, there, there's all sorts of these ferret things in works right now. Lipid nanoparticle spike protein design, the new mod RNA ferret nanoparticle, universal mm-hmm. flu injection. I think there's even a pan coronavirus ferret nanoparticle. So I was like, oh my God, this is terrifying. But so good news, if, if you believe that they're not accomplishing at the level that they're presenting, my other worry was about whether this was, you know, again, to the same point about what happened during the COVID-19 illusion is that if this is the stuff that we're experimenting on, and my point was you can connect this directly to the work of Charles Lieber, uh, Robert Langer, 
right? Who's also the co-founder of Moderna. And like, here's a, here's a study from Charles Lieber all the way to 2023 Mm -hmm. talking about stitching flexible electronics in the brain, which, you know, overlaps with magnetogenetics, optogenetics, and the things we were just discussing. And I just, so do you think that this might've been, you know, to what level do you think this is really happening? And again, the experiment, experiment concept, whether this was an effort to actual experiment with things during COVID-19, that kind of a concept. I know it's super theoretical and I'm not, you know, putting you on the spot if you don't want to get into that kind of put yourself out there for those statements. But I, I think this is concerning. I think um, so much of it is, is red herring. So much of it mm-hmm. is, is trying to keep us off the right track. And I think that I find myself always coming back to, to the concept that we are told um, that exclusively, and I, I'll say it in very physical terms, when we, the way that they find viruses is that they take a sucrose gradient, which is just sugar from thick to thicker all the way down. And the, the particles that they spin through here at very high speeds in a centrifuge sort out by weight and size through this this gradient and at the very very bottom the very very smallest things we're told are viruses now the problem with that is is that there's a whole separate field in biology that knows that all of our tissues communicate by rna and dna vesicle containing rna and dna they're called exosomes they can be called uh, uh, extracellular vesicles. They can be called lots of different things depending on who studies them. But cancer biology has known about these for a long time because they look for signals, RNA and DNA signals in the blood of people with cancer to find the cancer and to identify it. And the, the problem is, is that there is a whole field of biology that understands that healthy tissues signal in this same way. Mm-hmm. And that in your blood, if you spin this fraction down, the vast majority of that, that fraction in that, in that centrifuge, that's all endogenous signaling that's composed of RNA and DNA that if you chopped it up like uh, the library we talked about, you could pull almost anything you wanted out of that if Mm. you were careful. Um, And this this area of biology is actually probably the part of the immune system we understand the least. Why do I say that? Because T-cells, dendritic cells, uh, B cells, every cell that you can name in the immune system is somewhat autonomous. The only way that they could possibly send useful signals to one another is with chemicals or with RNA and DNA. And so now imagine the scenario in the early 90s or 80s when they started making a hepatitis vaccine in a chimpanzee kidney or some other kind of primate cell culture. And that cell culture contained exosomes from that species because mm-hmm. their tissues also signal. Now, if those exosomes are part of a vaccine and then you look into it and you see, wow, you know, these, these exosomes are now coming out of T-cells from these guys. And when we culture T-cells, we get more of this RNA signal. It looks like they're infected with a virus. And when in reality, what they have discovered is a fundamental part of how the immune system functions and a fundamental reason why certain people reject organs from certain people and why you never mix blood of animals with people because this doesn't work because at this size scale, there is a whole signaling regime that as biologists, we are wholly unaware of. And most of that signaling regime is probably maintained by, produced by, or monitored by the immune system. And so if you think about this as a a huge 
communication highway that we are told by the public health system to just completely ignore because it's only antibodies and it's only viruses, then you can really start from a biology perspective. I just feel like there's a whole host of possibilities that have never, we've never been allowed to consider. And instead we are really supposed to focus on the idea that our somehow our cartoon bodies are clean and occasionally they get dirty. And that's what we call sickness and vaccines keep us clean. Um, And this is a terrible mythology for us to pass on to our. Yeah. Well, you know, hopefully, you know, like the story from the, I think you said the pancreas discussion and bacterial thing, maybe maybe in 10 years, people will actually listen to what you're saying right now. And maybe we could see something change. It might (laughs) go faster than that. I don't know. I mean, Bobby Kennedy knows a lot of this stuff. Um, You know, I think that, that there are a lot of people who know a lot of this stuff and we just have to, um, people like you just have to keep giving people a voice and, and the, the, the truth will eventually take care of itself. Um, yeah. right now, we're still behind the eight ball and we're still, you don't have as much reach as you should. Um, and therefore everybody that's on your show doesn't. And that goes all the way down because on the other hand, there are people who shouldn't have as much reach as they do. And they're constantly getting more. And, and that's uh, also something that's very hard for us to quantify and fight. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly, man. And I think, you know, this is a good, I think it's a good place to, to wrap in general. I, I was going to go in a couple more things, but I, I would love to have you back on the show. I think Absolutely. you and I need I multiple more conversations. <laughs> yes, I would love that. But just when, just to get hint about, you know, in the future, I wanted to get into kind of the mod RNA, MR, mm-hmm. the M1-methylpseudouridine modified concept and where it's going next, which I find interesting, this methyl cyto, methyl cytosine it, it modified and I, we can talk about that in the future about what okay. that is and the differences there and i also just wanted to give a shout out to you know you did a, you had a great interview with denny rancourt back in 2022 that i hadn't seen because I'm, I'm kind of like newly going through some of your Absolutely. content and and i just love that you know if this is your talking with him about how you've altered your opinion and you know the the, the foundational parts and also just a shout out to denny rancourt who i've interviewed many times i think that his work is important in this and uh, I wanted to share this one as well. Uh, which one was it? I got this all in the wrong spot. Oh, I forgot to close these. This one here. Uh, this 2022, same point. Data proves COVID-19 is actually an illusion. And and it, his work really kind of opened my mind to the, the bigger picture around how even if, you know, it, whether or not you believe there's a virus or not, the point is the data could have been falsified to, to make you think something was there that was not. Either yes, way. And, you know, and yeah. to go on with this stream, Make sure that you understand that there is, there are proven, known, tested methodologies that they could have made, the, created the illusion of a sequence that was found in Wuhan, found in Washington, in the Sohomish County Man, and found in Italy, and the sequences matched exactly. They could do that with three Eppendorf tubes in a male. And, and all of this would have occurred. The PCR would have been positive. The sequencing reaction would have worked great, and the culturing would have been successful. And that would not have proved that something that started at a point is still circulating four years later. And that's, that's where we got to keep hammering, keep hammering. I I think your analogies today are going to do a lot of good for people. Like even just, you know, it's really laid it out in a simple way that makes it easy to picture why what you're saying makes perfect sense. And I I think that's going to help a lot of people understand this even more. I'm really grateful. Wow. Thank you very much. That's a huge compliment. Absolutely. And I look forward to talking to you hopefully again soon. And is there anything else you want to leave us with today? Upcoming work you have coming out? Any last points you want to make? Um, I'm, I don't know. I mean, maybe somebody listening here will care about this. I plan very, I, I, I take the, uh, you might be familiar with it, this document, Farewell to Virology. I take that document pretty seriously. And I have, 
I have acknowledged it in the past. I don't think that 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 document is some kind of uh, crazy thing. I think it's a very nice document and that it acknowledges that there were many people in the past who've already had similar questions about similar phenomenon. And I think more more and more as we move forward, it's important for all of us to be very humble that we were all at some point completely fooled. Um, I led people the wrong way for a long time in 2020, and I've lost... Uh, one of my best friends had an aneurysm uh, in December of last year and left behind two beautiful daughters and a beautiful wife. Um, and I know that it's because they took the transfection. And I know it's because I didn't have an, enough understanding and enough courage to 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 save them. And all of us were there. And we all kind of have to to get to that state where we can you know, admit that we were all fooled by this. And once that happens, then even the the most ingrained and entrained doctors, there there might be hope that they too can come to that humble realization. Absolutely, man. Well said. And uh, that's a great point to end on today. So thank you for your time, brother. And I'm sure we'll talk again soon. And as always, everybody out there, question everything, come to your own conclusions. Stay vigilant. All gene-based vaccines independent of manufacturers, produce the same result in the vaccinees. He has looked at 15. In the last four days, the number has been increased to 70 individuals who died after vaccination. These were people who died at home, at work, in the car, doing their sports, etc 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 there's no question now anymore about what is going on and the answer is in the organs of these people in 90 percent he found clear evidence for autoimmune self-attack by killer lymphocytes on the tissues